Hello, everyone. This is James with a fresh episode of Epistemic Unruliness.、Um, I have missed you all. I, I feel like I've been away and on vacation or something, and I'm coming back. So I feel like I need to just kind of talk to the listeners just for a minute here.、Um, I've been struggling this summer.、Um, let's just keep it real. We're going to keep it 100 here. I've been struggling this summer to make these interviews work and to coordinate them. And to get people to come on. I think it's maybe a summer thing. I've, you know, this, is my, this is our first summer having epistemic unruliness as an ongoing segment. And so、um, there's you know, moments of disappointment and whatnot in between you know, the, the silences on、uh, you know, our, our, our episode archive. There, there's a lot of、uh, background work going on in between those episodes. And so I'm really happy that I am, ab- am able to come to you with a fresh episode now. And we've got some episodes lined up in our pipeline.、Um, so I think we should be off to a good start. But, you know, all things in life are practice, and you just don't know until you practice. So、uh, I hope you all are enjoying your summers.、Um, and that if you're doing research or if you're getting to see family or vacationing or whatever you're doing during the summer,、um, I hope your summer is. Is refreshing for you.、Um, today, we have a really interesting、um, episode lined up with Simone Kolish, who is a PhD candidate、um, at the CUNY Grad Center、um, studying sociology. And we're going to be talking about radical pedagogy、um, or pedagogy as a radical praxis. And you know, sometimes we jet, we, when we joke about talking on, you know, about the academy and we wonder if we're navel gazing or whatnot,、um, today is not that case because. The Academy can be a radical activist space as well. It's not the ivory tower outside of things. And so,、um, but to kind of segue into that, and to once again, if there are new listeners joining us and you, you're wondering where epistemic unruliness is coming from as an idea, what is that title? So, we've, we've based that off of the article Epistemic Disobedience Independent Thought and Decolonial Freedom. By Walter D. Mignolo.、Um, you can find an episode where this essay is discussed、um, in our archive. So scroll down when you're finished listening to this episode and go find that one.、Um, but so Walter Mignolo is trying to look for epistemic disobedience,、um, and he has this quote、um, that I'm going to just share, and, I, and then I will segue over into the interview that you've come here to listen to today.、Um, but he says, Um, and by doing so,、um, we'll, if you want to know what he's really talking about, go listen to that other episode. So, and by doing so, doing what? I don't know. <laughs> But by doing so, turning Descartes' dictum inside out.、Um, rather than assuming that thinking comes before being, one assumes instead that it is a racially marked body in a geo historical marked space that feels the urge or gets the call to speak, to articulate in whatever semiotic system. The urge that makes of living organisms, quote, human beings. And so I think what we're trying to do here is to point out that the body or the mouth that speaks or gestures or makes some kind of signification is always already racially marked and sexually marked and marked by gender and marked by history and marked by geographic location, right? And, and all of that. Um, destroys the sense of an open, objective, zero point 
where epistemologically we can all know the same things in the same ways. Um, and so that's what we're doing here. Um, Simone Kolish, as I mentioned, is a PhD candidate at the CUNY Grad Center of Sociology, and they are bringing their marked body into the classroom and using that body as a sounding board for activist pedagogy. And when we come back from this break, you will find out all the details as to how that works in practice. So we are back. Um, I'd like to welcome to the show Simone Kolish. Kolish? I'm sorry. Am I pronouncing Kolish. that correctly? Kolish. No. All right. Simone Kolish. Um, Simone Kolish is a Ph.D. candidate in sociology at the CUNY Grad Center, um, and their focuses or foci is on sex and gender, sexualities, and race. Um, Simone has a concentration in LGBTQ studies and a certificate in women's studies. Welcome to the show. Thank you, James. I'm very glad to be here. Great, very glad to have you. I think we're um, in for an interesting conversation today. Um, as it relates, we like to sometimes joke when we talk about the Academy directly, it's like, are we navel gazing or not? Mm -hmm. But I think in this case, we're not because today, um, Simone is here to talk about pedagogy as a radical praxis, which turns the life of the academic into you know, a much more activist um, position than maybe a traditional understanding of like an ivory tower scholar um, who looks out on the world, um, you know, that, that old trope. So, Simone, let's just, um, I'll let you actually like flesh out a little bit more about your background and, and who you are and what you do, and then we'll just go from there. Well, let me tell you, James, I did not start out wanting to become an academic, uh, like every uh, immigrant. Uh, what happened to you? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, initially, uh, when I came to the United States at the age of 11 from Russia, and I was born in Azerbaijan, um, but there was a civil conflict, uh, so we had to run to Russia, and then we got a green card to come to the United States, and I went to um, public schools for middle and high school, and then hit NYU with a dream of becoming a doctor. And so I got my degree in biology, and I uh, started um, looking into LGBTQ activism because of the way that I identified as queer and uh, of the friend circle that I had, and realized, you know, through doing activism uh, that there was a lot wrong with uh, the medical system in the United States as such, and maybe I needed to look elsewhere, so I went for a master's degree in public health, again at NYU, and um, all that taught me was that there was a lot wrong with the way we deliver medical care in this country, and I, you know, tried to do professional work nine to five with cancer patients for some years and burned out uh, because there is a lot of inequality and injustice taking place. And I found myself completely lost. And I realized that over uh, the course of my life, I used to teach a lot. And it would be elementary school students, middle school students. Um, it would be working with high school students to improve their SAT scores. And I just kind of sat with myself and said, you know, what is one way you get to teach? And I knew the subjects that I wanted to teach uh, were not going to fly in a K-12 setting. And so then I sort of asked um, 
how do I get to teach college students? And someone, or I looked stuff up, said, you know, you got to get a PhD. And I said, okay, well, you know, people do that. All right, so let me do that. And what subject? And it was just really um, by process of elimination that I found sociology um, because uh, it was a study of groups in society and, uh, you know, the distribution of power between groups. And uh, that's how I ended up at the CUNY Graduate Center, um, sort of majoring in sociology. Cool. So did you find um, that you, when you talk to other people or whatnot, or the, your ideas of pedagogy and teaching as the end or like this is the, an important thing for you to pursue to become a teacher... Um, is that something that you've always had a sense of that teaching can be this molding and, you know, uh, kind of incubating process, or is that something that you've learned by having professors over the years who did not seem to take teaching as the most important thing that they were doing? You know what? Neither. I think um, prior to coming to graduate school, I knew that teaching was something I wanted to do, but it wasn't until I taught in the CUNY system from the very first semester uh, through now that I realized what um, kind of transformation it can have for my students and myself. So I actually began rather traditionally thinking more about research, plus I have a background in research, certainly in the hard sciences. Um, and then I I realized through learning about grad school and the academy that if I am not teaching, then I will probably not continue in a sense. Uh, so this is one of the only things that's keeping me in the academy. Great. And so, okay, I, so what types of classes, we already kind of thrown out there a bit, um, what your focus is on, you know, your research focuses on, but what kind of classes do you teach and how do you... Um, bring the teaching process to life in relation to the subjects that you deal with? Things have changed over the years. Uh, initially, I would take any class that was available because for us as adjuncts, that was a matter of um, making our ends meet. And I would do a lot of intro to sociology at uh, the Borough of Manhattan Community College. Uh, eventually, I got a job at Brooklyn College in the Women's and Gender Studies program. So there I began to teach Introduction to Women's Studies, as well as a fundamental course in LGBTQ studies for their LGBTQ studies minor. And I was able to teach things like women's sexualities as well. And uh, I went kind of all over the place to teach human sexuality uh, as well as urban sociology at Lehman. That was my most recent. Um, and cross-cultural studies at FIT and studies on the family at uh, MCNY and aging in America. Really, as an adjunct in, and a sociologist, um, the subject matter of the course uh, matters less to me because I think and I believe that we can become able to teach any subject area given enough uh, preparation. And so I never shut myself off from any particular course. And that's why I have such a wide variety. Um, but yeah, I feel more comfortable teaching women's studies courses. Uh, and that's to say that within that discipline, you're able to do a lot more radical pedagogy than outside it. Uh, in sociology, you still have to toe the line and teach in terms of traditional, you know, classical theorists and very particular sort of methodology. And women's studies is interdisciplinary. And um, 
you can mix and match uh, various disciplines that you feel comfortable doing. Uh, and I didn't start out as radical a teacher um, as I became or am now later on. I used to really get frightened and scared by student feedback about certain things and about um, certain knee-jerk reactions. And eventually I had an epiphany. I don't remember why, but I realized that I was standing on the shoulders of a lot of people, that what I was teaching was not my own ideas, uh, that plenty of scholars before me have done this work and that they are all, the generations of them are all on this side of history. And I started sort of to plant myself and root myself in things like critical race studies and women's studies and queer theory and trans theory, you know, and just say, look at all these folks behind me. They're holding me uh, forward. You know, they're holding me strong. And I, I switched in the classroom. I became a lot more confident um, and a, a lot more radical, according to some people. <laughs> according to some of those student feedback. Right? Yes. Uh, so do you think that the, the discipline of women's studies, because it's inherently political, right, or its agenda is an intervention into... A, you know, an academy, an academic field, the humanities and social sciences that were always political, but like neutrally political or invisibly political to itself. Um, and that women's studies is, you know, framing itself as a, an interventionist kind of research pro or researches. Has that helped uh, allow for more of what some people might describe as a radical, you know, posture in the classroom? You know, I think it depends on the person because you can take a women's studies department um, in names unmentioned, in places unmentioned, and uh, it will look as dry as any other academic discipline. It will look like courses um, that present instead of transform. And, it, and because women's studies and ethnic studies and critical race studies are under attack in so many schools, people are scared to uh, do anything that will um, be retaliated against. And so depending on where the professor is, whether we're adjuncts or assistant professors or non-tenured people and staff, uh, women's studies is in a precarious position. But I have to tell you also that perhaps it is the combination of my training, for which I again thank NYU and activism that I began to do there. But I don't really see a lot of women's studies engage as critically as I'd like with intersectionality and with really bringing in a racial consciousness to the classroom and a conversation about uh, LGBTQ identities and especially trans and non-binary identities so that they're able to have conversations more current about things like the bathroom laws affecting trans people, about the way to connect police brutality to gentrification, to things like sexual harassment on the streets. And so I try to do that through my research to give an example to students of how you can actually merge these seemingly disparate concepts into one. But uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way in every classroom. People choose the way to go through their syllabus. And I have seen other intro to women's studies professors do things very differently for me. And so in general, I tell students that they will benefit from a combination of professors. But, but as much as I know that 
say I go to a conference of people that teach women's studies, as much as I know that technically they should be able to understand the terminology and the language that I use in my activist position, it doesn't always mean that translates well or that they hold the same position at all. It's actually very shocking. So instead, I would find that more at workshops or conferences that deal with race. It's kind of like when your entrance is critical race studies, Mm. you'll get the feminism. But when your entrance (laughs) is feminism, you won't always get the race, but you might. That's interesting. Actually, I'm going to have to chew on that. But I think that seems to hold true uh, (laughs) in my experience of things. Um, So I think this you kind of already answered in advance what my next question is going to be. But um, you describe yourself as, you know, you teach in the classroom as an activist. Mm -hmm. And I would then I'm starting to see that maybe that, you know, what is activist about the way you bring students through the class over the semester and the way you set up your syllabi is that you are the combination of these different lenses allows (laughs) for almost a kind of call to action or it really presents things that are happening in the here and now in the you know in the news you know there's there's you are able to analyze that and able to really like understand what's happening in such a way that it makes it hard for you as a student or someone who is learning this to not then you know you've got all these premises already now and it's just like go do something with it so is that is that part of how you as an activist make your classroom space an activist space as well yeah i would say i came up with this kind of approach that i think other people sort of laugh about where the beginning of each of my lectures and i know if my students are going to listen to this they're just going to nod vigorously is always going through my facebook feed or tumblr feed because the people that i surround myself with are very social justice minded and activist and everyone else i have sort of deleted and blocked (laughs) and so the kinds of things we would look through on my timeline are the sorts of things that my students are talking about anyway or we just kind of looked over it on tumblr the bunch of us and it's kind of real life or real time i would say so instead of um organizing my lectures around reviewing the academic texts that they had to respond to through their homework Um, We put that aside and generally spend the lecture looking at what's going on right now and the way that they can show me they're able to apply some of the things from some of the classical texts to uh, current events. Also because I understand they're not able to have any other conversation when their minds and spirit are occupied by either grief Mm -hmm. or they are on pause or something else is going on. Like a little bit ago, the Verizon workers went on strike. And for a lot of my students, that included their parents, if it didn't include them. And when that strike was taking place for quite a long time, there was a lot of uncertainty in my student in my students' lives. And of course, a lot of them are already, you know, Black Lives Matter activists. They are doing work around immigrant issues and issues of undocumented students at CUNY. And they are doing rallies outside and all kinds of activism because into into my classes, they kind of come pre-selected, like in the upper levels. They come in being the students at the CUNY schools that already do a lot of activism. So these are the kids that are 
overburdened with a lot of social justice work. So I shifted it so that the classroom can be a safe space for them to, um, you know, uh, gain skills and new and new capacities to apply the stuff we learn to what they can take outside the classroom. And I know they do that because once you give them the language or once you give them the data, they feel more confident talking to their peers, to their families and everybody else, you know, around them. And the other thing I started doing is requiring an activist component in my classroom. It's 10%. So it's not a huge deal. But what I ask them to do is to find an event, whether it's academic or it's a protest or a rally, uh, whether it's something they agree with or not, and to just go outside of the CUNY system. Um, of course, sometimes it's at the CUNY Graduate Center and whatnot, but to go outside of their school and to reflect for me for a couple of pages about, you know, what is the world talking about? What's going on? What was that event about? What was this? And it's one of their favorite components, even though it's hard for them sometimes to like, you know, find the thing. But I have expanded the idea of activism um, quite broadly to say if you need to go to a vigil after yet another transgendered person's death, then that's going to be your activism. If you need to go to the Bernie Sanders rally and you feel that's more traditionally an activist event, go ahead. But if you also want to check out like the Afro-Brazilian, you know, the Afro-Caribbean, whatever kind of festivals and understand the lens through which those artists are doing activism, then let's go, you know, and it's been very, very successful. Yeah. So that's really interesting that activism and you developed it to have the, like a multiple, multiple (laughs) modalities in that way. Um, And so I want to ask you then about come to guess some kind of like some controversies or some issues of uh, these kinds of things in the classroom. So the first one is privilege and how do you check privilege amongst students in your classes and create that safe space for everyone to 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 not have to contend with the the hierarchy of the you know the social structure outside of the classroom. Let me say first that I try to approximate a safe space but firmly believe that they rarely exist. That a safe space to me is a moment in time where perhaps there can be some real solidarity for that moment. But that ultimately a classroom, especially full of 35 students that are new to one another and to the teacher, is not a safe space initially. And we try to build it towards that uh, as the semester goes by. But I know that there are a lot of tensions taking place. And I learned that from... BMCC when I, as a white person, went into a classroom that mostly had Dominican and Puerto Rican students, and I was not aware of some of the ethnic tensions in the area and what was going on, and they had to sort of express it in ways that I thought was very volatile to one another. And (laughs) I remember uh, being very naive, you know, it's like that kind of cartoon of the white professor wondering what is the problem with you guys? And, um, you know, and I don't remember, I always bring up this anecdote. I don't remember which group said this because I try not to learn new stereotypes. And they were like, well, these people had a chance at an American dream and they screwed it up. And so it's our turn. And, and I remember probably having my very first kind of outburst saying, you know what, to the people in power that are white and moneyed mm-hmm. and full of 
political office and energy, there is no difference because you're lumped into a panethnic clump. And, and rather than uh, go at each other, <laughs> you need to sort of understand um, the social hierarchies <laughs> in place. And so I began to try to figure out a way to establish a safe space and and it's a it's a constant tension for me because what I started to do was to sort of you know the usual kind of uh, thing peer educators do where I put up a safe zone uh, box on the board and I say you know we're going to be respectful and use I statements and be uh, you know mindful of the kinds of things people reveal and you're going to step forward step back you know and and you're going to be open-minded to not kind of making generalizations or whatever, but that's not enough. So uh, because uh, like everything else, creating a safe zone is a skill that my students should learn. So initially um, I just put up that on the board and then I started to say, you know what, for the you know, beginning of our course, I'm, I'm not going to let you speak as much as you think you need to speak. I'm going to model for you some of the ways controversial issues are discussed. Um, and maybe I will speak to each of you and then we will sit with that as a class, but I'm not going to let you go at each other until there's some ways we establish, um, how to say things, because I think, Things that students say in classrooms can be incredibly damaging to other students in that classroom. And until they believe me that these peers of theirs are in a very marginalized position with the onslaught of microaggressions and discrimination, you know, we can't have a very safe space. So I kind of say from the very beginning, we're going to establish that inequality exists. We're going to examine and define it in a multitude of ways throughout the course. But initially, I think we can agree that if we're having a conversation about race, I'd really ha I'd really rather my white students listen for the time being. And if we're having a conversation about cisgender or transgender lives and identities, I'd really rather my cisgender students take a step back. And, you know, and because I go through a lot of axes of oppression and power, um, it takes a while. It takes a while. And so, my establishing a safe space is saying rather than you harm each other, I'd, I don't even mind if you think of me as overpowering or, or as a B word or as whatever. Just like I hold, um, you know, the final say in uh, interrupting something I think is damaging. And you may not agree because you haven't um, you know, learned that particular chapter yet, or you haven't seen this particular debate yet, but these people have. And so that requires me to learn constantly. That requires me to change myself every year or so because of the things I'm learning in terms of what could be triggering, for example. Right. It's, it's just a lot of responsibility on yourself to be like the juggler of all the those. arbitrator. Mm -hmm. Right. Arbitrator. Um, but I think it's a, it's an interesting way to, you know, thinking of a safe space as a moment, right? And that it's like if it's if safe spaces are moments of solidarity and understanding, then they are like things that we need to work towards and learn how to, you know, enter into perhaps. And I think that your your approach to safe spaces and teaching students that you know you may not know this yet, but <laughs> like this is the first this is the first time you know that you're finding out that this terrain that we're about to go into of a conversation. <laughs> 
is you know rough for some other other folks, then I think that there's an interesting like an understanding on your part of how everyone's coming into this at different places and like <laughs> requires the practice. Um, you know, you have to practice how to listen and. It's a skill. It's learned skill. You mentioned the word trigger. Um, <laughs> so let's let's go to trigger warnings um, and all of the, the flack and the pushback um, that just the idea and the concept of trigger warnings. Um, now this is, and it segues in well with what we just talked about, right? Because you need to have conversations in a classroom that are not going to be triggering, that are going to be respectful and, you know, of everyone's life paths. So is this a, and what do you think about that whole controversy? I don't I even want to put it, you call it that, you know, it's in air quotes, controversy. Yeah, you know, I can't believe when I look upon this conversation, how much energy we've put in arguing over whether or not a trigger warning means that today's college students are too sensitive. And I think the people holding the conversation uh, around trigger warnings um, have never understood the dynamic that I discussed with you. They never understood properly why trigger warnings are important and that they're not exactly a reflection on the American college system or the way parents are helicoptering or the way that students can't handle certain things. They are used in a very specific way by very specific professors uh, as opposed to all professors everywhere. I come to trigger warnings from, a, again, an activist social justice background and they are quite accepted because when you are a women's studies professor and um, by virtue of being that you learn how to address trauma, <laughs> it's actually textbook to try to anticipate that certain things that you watch, certain things that you say can uh, trigger a response that makes one think back to when they have been otherwise assaulted or traumatized. But I feel like that's a very particular kind of background. And if you think of yourself as a traditional teacher that is out there to put this information for students, then I don't think you have, you know, you didn't give much thought to what that could do. Um, but women's studies professors become sensitive to... Uh, what students respond. I think it's also the people that are having a conversation about this. I've never talked to students who have said, this is what this conversation did for me. This is what this student saying this particular thing did for me. I am lucky to have students that come and talk to me all the time. I'm lucky to have students that trust me to tell me that all the time so that I can then reevaluate what to do. But that being said, I don't do a lot of trigger warnings. And I'll tell you why. In general, I want my students to come to me and tell me which particular things they are um, possibly triggered by. So I do an anonymous survey at the beginning of some classes and I ask them if they belong to a marginalized gender and sexual identity, if they have had to deal with difficult um, 
experiences like rape and sexual assault and an eating disorder and caretaking for somebody and, you know, whatever it may be. And I asked them to be honest with me and to, to put it all out on these pieces of paper first class. And then I sit with these 90 or 120 pieces of paper and get a sense for who's in the room. Um, And of course, you could say perhaps they're not completely honest, but they're honest enough for me to recognize that in a women's studies classroom or rather any classroom, nearly every person that identifies as a cisgender or trans woman has had an experience of sexual assault and that a person of color will tell me something about the fact that they have been treated uh, in a racist way in an academic college setting. And so I basically understand where my, my you know, raw spots are in the class. And, and so I tell them from the beginning that no matter what's going on, you're free to get up and walk out for a little bit. But there is a tension around that because it outs you. Uh, If we're talking about trans folks and my trans kids don't want to have a conversation about that, but they're not disclosing their trans status, walking out is very difficult. So I try to teach them also to like, let me know some other way, like hand gestures or whatever. And uh, it's not a perfect system. I'll tell you that. So when do I pull a trigger warning, actually, when there is... um, So I let myself, I guess, be the arbitrator again. When there is something that um, is visually coming up that uh, has to do with sexual assault, I will give a trigger warning and I will say, you may certainly get up right now or put on your headphones or whatever. And the one time I was teaching in Aging in America, we were watching a very raw documentary on the ways people choose to die. And there was a person on screen that was about to die uh, willingly using, you know, euthanasia and whatever overseas. And that was very jarring for me when I watched it. And I said, my students for sure will have a difficult time with this. And so I, I, I used a trigger warning then. But if other professors use it more or less, then that is up to them because they still have to process the classroom after whatever visual or textual thing that they do. And so I would never tell another teacher, you use too many trigger warnings. And I have never heard a student say, why are we using all these trigger warnings? I have heard students say, these are materials I can handle and these are materials I can't. And because everybody has one of those in each of the boxes, then nobody's mad at anybody else because it's kind of sort of um, paying more attention to their individuality than kind of their group characteristics. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, you said the, you know, the, word, the idea of sensitivity and just being sensitive to where your students are at and having to you know to process the class or like if you're if if you are a professor who is like staunchly opposed to trigger warnings for whatever reason okay but then if you still are like if something in a classroom discussion goes awry and now you've got a problem on your hands or like there are students who are not feeling comfortable in that classroom anymore I mean what I don't understand what See, this is what I was saying, I guess, earlier, that not a lot of scholars always seem to think that teaching is important and that it's like, you know, they can just come into the class and like shock value or be like a shock jock and they feel like that, oh, you're here to learn, you're going to get the truth or like I'm not going to sugarcoat things. And I don't see what, are you teaching people something that like the idea of to teach is to have someone 
you know, process it and integrate it and be able to make it their own idea. If that's your goal, then like shocking people or like raking people over the coals. I mean, I don't, you know, uh, this isn't like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, like the dark twisted version or something. I don't get, it just doesn't make sense to me why people can't just be more sensitive and aware and have just an ounce of compassion for the human beings that are sitting across from you in that room that perhaps they have experiences and histories and stories that, you know, if you knew a little bit more about them, and maybe if more professors actually spoke to their students as people, that, like, you would... This Some of this is just, like, this is not necessary. The whole conversation and the argument over it just seems to be like people are talking past each other more than understanding and just the phrase trigger warning is like people are up in arms about it um which like you're saying you can you can have a trigger warning ethos without ever using that specific phrase in that specific way so i think when people listen to you talk like that there would be a lot of pushback from certain academics that uh, consider the classroom an objective space where everybody is equally able to have a conversation. I have had a lot of pushback from men, which is not surprising, about the fact that a classroom is a place of Socratic dialogue. And I come from philosophy myself and led, read Socrates fine and understand what that notion is. But like I said earlier, a classroom is not a safe space, nor is it a place of Socratic dialogue because people are coming in with existing experiences of oppression that they have carried and accumulated for a very long time and studies show if you're interested in studies which i am uh, that the same kinds of inequalities take place in a classroom and students know it whether they know the studies or the academic language that no matter what class they take white men talk over everybody mm. no matter what class they take the veiled women are not able to speak as easily because of the multiple oppression they face as immigrant students or perceived as dark or perceived as timid and that my trans students are not going to once more have a conversation about how you shouldn't say transgenders as a professor. So my other point is yeah. that professors themselves are the reason we need trigger warnings. Yeah, they are triggering. <laughs> because, because many of my students say once they take my class and they take some other class right after, they say I burst into tears because this person said the worst sexist thing I've ever heard and everybody laughed and then they laughed at me and then they laughed at you and then they laughed at all of us and I don't know what to do and I you know, sometimes wonder if I should get involved and sometimes I have gotten involved, but I want my students to have that capacity as well. And, and basically, I really don't believe that students come in equally able to voice, um, uh, who, you know, what they think. Uh, and I had another I had another thought about the fact that shock value for shock value's sake is important. I would say, and many of my students would say, that a lot of things that I say are shocking. That they are absolutely flabbergasted every time they leave my classroom. Which is why if you look over my ratings on Ray My Professor or whatever, they sort of sound like, you better come into this classroom open-minded because you are going to hear Professor Kolish say some things and it will just kind of be um, very very direct and incredibly blunt, and I don't hold back 
with my students. But there's a difference between saying and calling all of us out for, um, say, we watched a stop and frisk video about the NYPD's racist policies. And you can't argue that kind of data. And I look at all of us and say, what kind of a society contributes to an institution that summarily and perpetually, you know, targets black and Latino youth that are supposed to be over here learning in my classroom? How do we hold ourselves accountable? And I leave it there. And I think it's hard to sit with that question. And if I bring up some statistic about, you know, sexual assault in a college setting. And I say, look, we have some boys, we have a a majority of girls in the school, you know, one in three might be assaulted, one in five raped. That means, you know, if we do the hard math, some of you boys are potential rapists. Mm. How do you sit with that? And it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. It's triggering for some students. And yet, it doesn't make it any less true. When we have a conversation about white privilege and people disagree that they hold it and they disagree that I think that exists or that these scholars are all wrong all over the place in every discipline, <laughs> I say, regardless of your feelings, the world continues to go on in the manner in which it goes on. So whether or not you become enlightened through the past 15 weeks, whether or not you think I'm a good person or a bad person, the ways that racism operates continues unmoved. And um, that actually kind of sounds hopeless for my other students too, because if we are not making any changes through our thinking, you know, and it continues unmoved anyway, But I say, but you can take a different path. You can transform your understanding and you can transform your allegiance and you can become incredibly active because especially for my students who are women and students who are students of color, and of course there's lots of overlaps because it's CUNY, (laughs) if you don't concern yourself with things like politics and you don't concern yourself with things like math, and data and boring words like theory, then these particular things like politics and academics will concern themselves with you without your permission. If you're not the researcher, you will continue to be the one researched. While I also explain to them kind of through a meta-analysis about their academic journeys. And though I hope they all go to grad school and become PhD students and all of that. We look at numbers that show that's not the case for CUNY undergrads, that even the CUNY Graduate Center has shifted its admission policies to accept people more internationally, people from private schools, people with master's degrees. And there's no place for my CUNY students to go ahead and become part of the conversation uh, academically. And so I have a lot of tensions in my classroom about the space in which we're in to begin with, where I say, should you become a PhD student? And then they say, but I thought you told us there will be so much racism and sexism. And I said, that's true. But should you become a, you know, and these are conversations I have with my peers 
these are not conversations just undergrads should have. These are conversations we have about diversity in our own setting, about diversity in jobs we seek, in terms of whether there will be jobs. And uh, I think it really truly links us with our students in ways that other professors don't seem to be able to do. When we have a conversation about striking as adjuncts, and my students are asking why, I link it to their student debt. I link it to their own... Um, you know, demands that they must have for the kinds of um, salaries that their professors should receive. And because they don't have that information generally, and because it's taboo to reveal it, I do. Because then they come and strike with us. (laughs) One one last controversy. Um, The syllabi, women study syllabi and language. Mm-hmm. Do you want to explain what the problem is? That's yeah, happening? and I gave a little bit of an interview to the Chronicle of Ed on this a little bit ago. It isn't just women's studies syllabi, but it just by coincidence turns out to be that some professors just like me put more explicitly on their syllabi that they will not tolerate sexist speech or racist speech in a classroom. And of course, that you know, makes people come out of the woodwork and talk about um, various, you know, First Amendment rights and censure. And, um, and when I looked at that controversy, I said, my God, because the professors have been chastised, they were forced to gag, you know, they were, a gag order was placed on them to not talk. And they were asked to change their syllabus. And I said, that could have been me. I said, I don't explicitly put that in my syllabus because I know better not to put that uh, down on paper. But that's exactly what I do in the classroom. That could have been me. And it turns into this attack on people who are more radical, who are questioning the academy, who are providing a transformative lens for their students. And I said, what are we arguing about? The fact that you want to have sexist and racist speech in the classroom? Is that the Socratic dialogue you sought after canceling trigger warnings? What kind of a place is the classroom? And so I think as I get older and look towards the job market, I ask myself, what does the classroom do? And I know it sounds really cliche, but just recently I learned about a university that didn't cancel their classes necessarily, but put over a thousand riot police into the university in preparation uh, for the convention or policing of some other kind. And that to me really brings together this, like, what does the classroom do? And that was the name of the article that showed, you know, that showed this happening. Um, And I said, indeed, like, how can we simultaneously teach students about police brutality and then have our own university support riot police staying there with students without canceling classes? It's actually quite current of a of attention it's quite relevant to have a conversation about what the university does um as we get uh more and more into issues of silencing professors and arresting people for things they say on social media and so it feels very precarious it feels very precarious to have your syllabi micromanaged uh and i often say that for now while we're adjuncts nobody looks too close at what's going on because we are dispensable. But when you have your tenure writing on this and your salary, an actual salary, then people become a lot more 
rigid and they are forced to be that way i think it's maybe that's probably the best place to wrap up our conversation to the precariousness of actually you know practicing a radical pedagogy and and coming into the classroom to transform the students minds and to help them figure out ways to transform their worlds it's precarious but it's also super important and has its own rewards i'm sure uh, you know that the university is not the university need not almost be the, the credit of what's happening in those classroom spaces where a professor who is engaged and students who know that they have an advocate um, when they meet up um, it seems like that is all that is necessary um, for for learning right to actually flourish and take place so um, any final thoughts any last thing you'd like to say for anyone else out there listening who you know is also adjuncting and thinking of how they can do what you know try to make that role more potent I think it's important for people to recognize where they are and to understand which particular areas they need to learn more about. I think before you go into the classroom, people ask me this all the time, actually, about how to teach around race and sexuality because they call them, quote, unquote, controversial topics, and I seem to do quite well with them. Uh, I say, you know, first you have to learn. You cannot go into a classroom and teach very comfortably around transgender lives and identities if your definitions are not, you know, up to date or you haven't informed yourself. So whatever piece of sociology, women's studies or whatever subject uh, you want to um, actively engage students on, you should be learning as well. And to your point about learning overall, I am deeply invested in the process. I have so many different experiences in my own life of uh, investing in schooling and learning and degrees and look at me hiding out once more in higher education. Uh, I'm deeply invested in what it can be and whether we have to think about um, dis destroying the neoliberal model as it is right now, whether we have to contribute to things like what Free University does. I've taught classes with them as well. You know, whether we have to think about creating our own spaces of learning that are, you know, free and accessible and outside and inside. You know, I think it's also about getting out there outside of the classroom with students. So, like, a lot of my students stay in touch with me and we, you know, come up with events and we come up with actions and we come up with things that they're doing that I really want to support them on. Like the inactive NAACP chapter at Brooklyn College right now wants to have a series of workshops on race and white privilege and whatever else with students. And uh, I'm one of the professors that will work with them to sort of create that programming and do that. And um, my final, I guess, thought is that that really does burn us out because, you know, if you remember, we have to work on our dissertation <laughs> and we also have other responsibilities like I will hold a fellowship coming up in the next year and still teach three. The kinds of things that adjuncts are doing, my advice to adjuncts is to recognize how much 
you are doing and to leverage that in the job market because um, nobody is doing as much as us. Nobody in their right mind is teaching three to four courses per semester the way that I do, plus TAing a graduate course, plus trying to mother three children and, and whatever else we all have in our lives. I think adjuncts need to unite and I think they need to uh, um, stop apologizing for the sorts of labor that they that they do and really put that all over their cv put it all over their websites and um say that if you have been trained in the cuny system you are ready to go to teach whatever course wherever place and uh you will do that better than existing professors at that institution here here well thank you so much uh for all your thoughts that you shared with us today and this is simone polish PhD candidate in sociology at the Community Grad Center. Thank you. Thank you. So let's give one more big thank you to Simone Kolish. Uh, really enjoyed that conversation. I think my listening audience here probably enjoyed it too. Of course, you can't you know, tell me right now in lifetime that you did um, because of our strange multiple temporalities here um, in recording technology. But I know you enjoyed that episode, and I hope that it will um, give other people you know, a kind of encouragement to, to, to engage critical theory and radical praxis within the classroom as an activist and from the position of the marked body and not as, uh, you know, a, an objective, empty kind of vacuum space. And to think of your teaching as, as an activist, you know, tool for transforming the social material world that we live in, right? Like we as scholars, I think, um, have the, you know, publish or perish, publish or perish as our mantra. And it all becomes about research, research, research. But research is only as good as those who read it. And, you know, how many people actually read what we write relative to how many students will come through our classrooms that if we engage them and speak to them and talk to them and talk with them and listen to them and understand them and try to be become aware of of their full totalities and their multiplicities um then the work of transforming can take place right there or the seeds can be planted for transformation right there. And so again, thank you, Simone, for coming on. Um, you've definitely influenced my own thoughts um, as I'm preparing my own syllabi for the fall. And so with that, I bid you all a, a fond, fond good afternoon. Um, please, Again, you don't even have to wait to be a teacher in a classroom. We're all educators in many multiple ways. And so the world is ours to transform it. Um, I wish you all a wonderful afternoon. And I will see you next time on Epistemic Unruliness. Take care. Thank you.
for joining us on another episode of the Always Already Podcast, which is created by James Pylini Jr., John McMahon, Emily Crandall, Rachel Brown, and B. Altman. Visit our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at alwaysalreadyon, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash alwaysalreadypodcast, subscribe to our RSS feed, and leave us a rating and comment on iTunes. Thank you, as always, to Leah Dion and to B for the music. You heard Leah's static loops earlier, and you're hearing B's landslide right now. Until next time, have an always already day. <laughs>